Welcome. This is the Board of County Commissioners meeting for November 28, 2012. It's our regular meeting. Are there any additions or deletions to the agenda, Phyllis? I do not have any. Are there members of the public here who wish to make comment at this time? Yes, sir. Jim Curtis, on behalf of Compass and the Community School, I promise this will only be a minute. If you might have noticed, starting Monday, this past Monday, we began to publish invitation to bids in both newspapers on the intersection improvements and the central wastewater system. And we are proposing to get bids back January the 17th and hopefully proceed with construction on both projects next spring. As you know, on the central wastewater system, we still need permits from the state. And I would like to see if I could potentially ask the county commissioners to send a relatively plain letter to the person at the state reviewing the application, basically to make every effort to see if we could get that permit by March 1st, 2013. And if that's something you would consider, if you could put that on letterhead, wordsmith in any way you would like, and email it down to Brett, that would be appreciated by the community school in Compass. If you feel uncomfortable in doing that, that's fine also. But once again, I just want to make every effort to get those improvements built next spring, next summer. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. We'll consider that. Okay. Thank you. Yes? Yeah, I certainly would support this with just a run by staff to make sure it's consistent with how we operate. Certainly appreciate it. Thank you. And good luck with the bids. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public who wish to make a comment at this time? Seeing none, we'll close the public comment portion and move on to commissioner comments. Commissioners, do you have comments? George? Yeah. While the country is in Super Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl madness. Powerball. Powerball. Madness today. This Friday, John Fielder will be at the Wheeler Opera House doing a slide presentation starting at 7 p.m. And it's a celebration of 20 years of the Great Outdoors Colorado, our program here in Colorado. And if you don't know John Fielder, he's a renowned photographer. And he actually went throughout the state this past year or so and visited and photographed all of the recipients of GOCO's grants over the last 20 years or so, from ranch conservations to open space purchases and trails. So I think it's going to be a very interesting and informative evening this Friday. And we, as Pickett County, have actually been a recipient of over $10 million from these GOCO funds over the last 15 or 20 years or so. And those dollars have gone to, again, to purchase of open space, to the construction of trails, as well as conservation of ranch land. So it's a great program for the state. 
and it's been a great program and partnership with GOCO for Pitkin County. So again, I would encourage people, they have the time to uh, come see this slide presentation uh, this Friday night, the Wheeler. I think the tickets are only $10. Thank you, George. Commissioners, any other comments at this time? None? Uh, we'll move on to consent actions. This is the minutes of the work session of November 7, 2012, and regular minutes of the meeting of November 14, 2012. I'll make a motion for approval of both of those. I'm going to recuse myself on the first. I was not here. I'll second. I was also not here, but um, I don't need to. I've read the minutes, and they're fine with me. So um, uh, is there any further discussion? All in favor? Aye. Aye. Aye for the one I was here. Uh, consent actions. First reading set for public hearing on December 5th. This is a re resolution to enter into intergovernmental agreement with Snowmass Water Sanitation District for the maintenance and repair of the district's vehicles. Chris Bull, and also a resolution to enter into intergovernmental agreement with Aspen Fire Protection District for maintenance and repair and supply of fuels to the district's vehicles. Chris Bull also is the representative. Uh, do we have any questions for Chris? George? Questions. You can please sit down. Thank you. Uh, one of these is just a renewal, correct, correct. for Snowmass? And, and there's, there's a new uh, IGA with the Aspen Fire District along the same lines. That is, that is correct. The, it, sorry, basically the same item, one is a renewal and one is a, a new agreement. Yeah, so my question is, and I think this is great that we're able to do this, but my question is either um, we're becoming much more efficient uh, in terms of being able to offer these amenities uh, to these other districts, or we're going to need to staff up uh, in terms of your workload, how does that work? I would like to believe it would be more efficient. I'd like to believe that some of the reorganization we've done in the department since I've been here, which has certainly been with the cooperation of other departments in the county and our expectations of the services that we need, we feel we have some capacity. Uh, certainly there is no plans to have to beef up staff to maintain these agreements. We feel we have the capacity, and if that capacity becomes limited, we will certainly restrict the amount of work that we do for these outside agencies. But I really do believe that it's because of the reorganization and efficiencies that we've been able to make with the approval of the board and the uh, other management in the county. Yeah, great, well thanks. Board, any further questions? Yes, Jack? Yeah, Chris, I would very much compliment you and your staff on this. I remember when I was on the Water and Sand Board for 10 years, we, we, one time we had an agreement with Snowmass Village and uh, wasn't that efficient except for capacity being able to provide the service. So I really appreciate reaching out to the community and, and doing providing these kind of services because I think the key, and it's in the language, is that on your call as far as timing, et cetera, and I don't know how you might deal with an emergency, that's a different issue, but uh, this is really a, a real plus and a move forward. Thank you. Thank you. Any further questions? Uh, any motions? I'd like to make a motion for the first resolution to approve. 
A resolution of the Board of County Commissioners of Pickham County, Colorado to enter into an intergovernmental agreement with the Snowmass Water and Sanitation District for maintenance and repair to the district's vehicles. Is there a second? I'll second that. Any further discussion? All in favor? Aye. Aye. Is there a motion for the second resolution? I'll make a motion. Motion for a resolution of the Board of County Commissioners of Pickham County, Colorado to enter into an intergovernmental agreement with Aspen Fire Protection District for maintenance and repair and supply of fuels to the district's vehicles. Second. Any further discussion? All in favor? Aye. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Good luck. The next items are consent public hearings, second reading. The first item is a resolution setting initial airport fees and charges for 2013. Jim Elwood and Tom Oaken are scheduled, but I think Brian Griffey is here and Tom Oaken is here. Would you gentlemen come forward, please? Brian, could you just outline what this resolution encompasses? Absolutely. Jim Elwood sends his apologies that he is otherwise detained. This is the second reading. The major change is landing fees and airline terminal rent. Really, that's the only change. We're proposing increasing landing fees 5%. That is based on what would have been a justification of 20% landing fees on our cost recovery model. Based on a 10% increase last year, we thought asking for the full amount would be a little excessive, so we limited that to 5%. The airline terminal rent, 2.5% increase to cover increases in costs. Board, are there any questions for Brian or Tom? Seeing none, is there a motion? There's Jim Elwood right now. Jim, you just missed it. Brian did a terrific job. Pleased to hear that. Michael, he's here for the public hearing. He's here for the public hearing. Oh, it is a public hearing. Thank you so much. Are there members of the public, besides Jim Elwood, who would like to make comments at this time? Okay. Is there a motion? I will make a motion to approve the resolution of the Board of County Commissioners, Pickens County, Colorado, setting inter-airport fees and charges for 2013. Is there a second? I'll second. Is there any further discussion? Yes, George? I have a question as long as Jim is here as well. I know that we've lost seats this coming winter since Frontier has pulled out of the market. And I just happened to be down in Telluride over the Thanksgiving holidays, and I noticed that Montrose actually has a discount carrier in there called Allegheny, I think. Allegiance. Allegiance, yeah. And do they have the equipment that would be necessary to utilize our airport? Have we talked to them at all? Allegiance is a super discount carrier, actually, a super low-cost carrier. I believe that they did a minimum revenue guarantee to acquire that airline, but Allegiance does not have aircraft that can operate in and out of our airport today. Yeah. Okay, I'm just curious. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. So is there a motion and a second? We have a motion and a second. 
Uh, is there any further discussion? All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, next is an ordinance approving the purchase of the Columbines at Elk uh, Run Unit 104 for Pickett County Employee Housing Inventory and authorizing the chair to execute the necessary documents. John Peacock, Brian Pettit, and John Redmond are scheduled to be here. John Redmond is um, the sole representative. John, what exactly is this uh, this purchase? Well, we're seeing, it is a, a three bedroom housing unit uh, in the salt. Uh, it's 1,992 square feet, roughly $165 a foot. Um, and it's in excellent condition and great location. I think it'll be a, a very desirable unit for a lot of people. Excellent. Board, are there any questions for John? Is there a motion? I'd like to make a motion uh, to approve. Uh, I'll take a second and then I'll have a couple of minutes. Is there a second for that? I'll second it. And I'd like to read the language for the record. In motion to approve an ordinance of the Board of County Commissioners of Pickens County, Colorado, approving the purchase of the Columbines at Elk Run Unit 104 for the Pickton County Employee Housing Inventory and authorizing the chair to execute the necessary documents. This is a public hearing. Are the members of the public who wish to speak at this time? Seeing none, we'll close the public hearing. Any further discussion, board? All in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you, John. Thank you. Uh, the next item is a land use consent public hearing the in and Aspen T-Mobile special review for renewal of a cell tower site. This has been continued to 121912. Uh, Lance? Yes, the reason uh, they failed to get their notice posted for this meeting, so we had to continue it. Uh, and do you need a motion for yes. a 1219? Yes, please. Is there a motion? To continue until 1219. I'll make a motion to continue um, the in at Aspen T-Mobile special review uh, for renewal uh, of a cell site tower to <coughs> 1219. Um, and it is. Do we do public hearing on yes. continuance too? So, well, are the members of the public who wish to speak at this time on this matter? Seeing none, we'll close the public hearing on this. Is there a second? second? Uh, any further discussion? All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you, Lance. And we also have the Nakagawa Annual Review. This has been continued also to 12-19-12. Um, this needs to be continued because we determined that a variance procedure had to be gone through before they could come before you. That is going to happen next week. So we would like to continue this to 12-19. I'll make a motion for a continuance of the Nakagawa annual review continue to 12-19-2012. Second. Uh, this is a public hearing um, for continuance. Are the members of the public who wish to address this Nakagawa annual review issue? Seeing none, we will close the public hearing. Um, there's been a motion and a second. All in favor? Uh, Aye. Aye. Thank you, Lance. Um, the next item is a land use code amendment, accessibility, and Joanna Schaffner, but um, she's uh, not here. 
Are you prepared to take her place or I, not? No, I am not. As a matter of fact, I think that no one, who would have thought that at 1218 we would be the next to last item on the agenda? Here she is. And uh, here she comes right now. And the, uh, the advocates, Jody Edwards, Merle Rambo, uh, are here. And now Jordan is here. I'm sorry, I'm so, Actually, girls, you probably should sit here. Yes, they moved extremely fast. Just relax. No, we, we do have plenty of time, Joanna, so um, we have at least a minute and a half. I'll use that one. I need one if you have an extra. Oh, did you get one to go? Oh, you're going to want to read it. You can close that Joanna, we're done. So welcome, Joanna. So do you want to outline exactly what this code amendment is about? Yeah, I'm kind of in a nutshell. The form that I just passed out, the little handout, kind of summarizes everything. Basically, this is Merle Rambo, and Merle is um, a resident from Mountain Valley. He's also an architect. And he came to staff earlier this year requesting growth management and floor area exemptions to design a house that was accessible um, for his family. So <clears throat> staff was supportive of the idea, and we found five different sections of the code that uh, we wanted to address. One was the definition and the calculation of building height, the measurement of floor area and gross floor area, uh, certain encroachments that are permitted within setbacks, and then finally the growth management exemptions. And we feel that these uh, amendments are going to address the five critical components of making a home accessible. And those are providing access from the street and from the parking area to the main entrance, elevator access, access to the kitchen, social living areas, and related toilet areas, bed and bath access, and then the secondary egress to grade. And these are the, like I said, the five components that we're trying to address. So Joanna, let me ask you, are most houses not accessible? Correct. And under what definition aren't they accessible? Um, the standard that's being used is the American National Standard Institute. It's called ANSI, and it's the building code that's used uh, to, to meet ex um, accessibility and visitability standards. So that's, that is uh, um, optional when you build a house, whether you want it accessible or not. Yes. And so um, there are people who are converting their houses, and, and um, in order to do that, we've created this exception exemption essentially. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Mr. Rambo lives in Mountain Valley and that's a zone district where you have a ratio and the ratio really limits your FAR ability and so when you design a home for um, accessibility needs it needs to be bigger, your hallway needs to be wider, you need an elevator. <clears throat> Certain modifications can't be done in those homes because of the limited FAR. When staff first started um, these amendments, we sought to limit where it would be applicable. At first, we restricted it to lots with ratios where the floor area was kind of super restricted. Um, we limited it 
in terms of the zone districts and, and how we wanted to apply it. And when we got to the P&Z, the P&Z blew it open and said, let's make this available to more people. And that's when we included the 5750 lots. The sheet that I just handed you at the bottom of it, I, I want to be clear, this is not countywide. There are still several zone districts where we are not proposing these amendments and exemptions <clears throat> for various reasons. What reasons are those? Well, those include the business zone districts, and that's commercial development, and right now we're focused on the residential. It includes Redstone, where we have historic concerns, and the guidelines would have to be amended, and they have much more restricted FAR down in Redstone. Um, we included the mobile home park zone districts, rural and remote, where we have a thousand square foot limitation. <coughs> um, there's also the tourist zone district, the transitional residential zones, and the public institutional. Okay, thank you. But we, are, we do feel like we're, we're addressing the majority of homes in the, in the county. So um, we can speak as to the uh, specifics of what needs to go into an accessible home. Murrow is prepared with additional uh, floor plans and, and elevations, illustrations, if you'd like to um, see how that works in practice. Um, otherwise, I'll just go into the proposal. Is that fine with the board? Yes, go yes. ahead. Okay, so um, for those lots that are in zone districts where we have ratios, limiting floor area. If you're building a new house, the proposal is for 350 square feet, and that goes to your general living. That increases the size of the bathroom and the hallways, uh, etc. That's the only exemption you would get is 350 square feet. If you have an existing home and you are um, keeping 65% of it, you receive a free elevator allowance, and these are for specific qualified elevators. You get a 100 square foot exemption for every floor that's accessible. You also receive um, up to 100 square feet per floor or level exemption from existing stairs and ramps. Right now we count stairs on every floor level. So stairs, if you have multiple levels in your home, a big part of your FAR is given up to the stairs. And so we're looking to exempt those stairs to provide more FAR to, to do the um, alterations that are necessary. And then also if you have an accessory, access, an existing accessory structure of at least 250 square feet, we're proposing an additional 50 square feet to um, make for a bathroom expansion. We thought if you had an accessory building, it might be your home occupation or it might be your office or something like that. We'd also like to make that um, available. And again, that's just for existing accessory structures greater than 250 square feet. For those zone districts where you're limited, your FAR is limited by growth management, uh, we have two proposals. One is for a new residence, 10%. So you get 575 square feet and you need to make that work. It's a brand new house, you get 5750 plus the 575, you should be able to make something work. If you have an existing home, uh, we, we are looking at um, the elevator allowance of up to 100 square feet per level. And um, that's it in a nutshell. It, 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 this will also be, um, building permits will be issued subject to protective covenants or um, a covenant agreement which would 
basically limit the use. It speaks to the use of the house being accessible and, and, and that's where the extra floor area came. If the house were demolished and were to be brought back not accessible, it would have to just comply with regular floor area. The additional floor area that's granted through this uh, should not be considered uh, a non-conformity in the future. You know, that you have all this extra FAR, you could tear it down and bring back a big house that's not accessible. So that's one of the points that the covenant will address. Board, any questions for Joanna at this time? Yes, Jack? <coughs> yeah, a couple things. Um, yeah, I fully support this. And though I was wondering as I began, there wasn't an explanation that there's a connection to, for example, to request this, there has to be a connection to, say, an individual family that has physical limitations or disabilities. So there's no criteria to generate this. You can just get this extra, and you don't need to demonstrate there's no need. No, we'd like to create an inventory of homes that are accessible. It's not someone else's problem, it's our future. Any further questions, Jack? Nope. <clears throat> George. Joanne, um, when you, let's say in the, um, the zones for the 5750, where by right you're allowed to build, and, and it's just you just have a generic 10% increase of 575 square feet. How, how, do, how do we assure ourselves that these are actually going to be used for accessibility and not just for enlarging a, a current kitchen or living room? Well, the whole house has to become, um, has to meet the standards. So it's not just one room or the other, the whole house has to. And we're not requiring that anybody that has needs are in the, or live in the house or are using the house. Like I said, we want the homes to be available out there in the market um, and available the people that own the home may not have any needs, but they may have visitors. And so, um, I'm not sure. My, now my question is, how, how, how are we assured that if we're allowing an additional 575 square feet, that it's gonna be used for that purpose and not, not just gonna be used just to enlarge a living space without addressing the needs for accessibility? In other words, I, I you know, if, I, if I'm allowed an additional 575 square feet for accessibility, I could just enlarge my living room without actually enlarging my bathroom or my hallways. How, how do we no, assure the whole, ourselves? No, the, the whole house has to be compliant with, there's two chapters that we're looking at in the ANSI. One is for accessibility, the other is for visitability. So there are the five criteria, and you have to meet all these five criteria. The whole house has to be designed. It's not just, here's another 500 square okay. feet for your living room. So the whole house, it's a package. Okay. Not only the inside, the outside as well, because you need to have access from your drive, you know, from your, from your car to the house or from your house to your accessory structure. A few of the other points that I didn't um, bring up because they're not related to floor area, one would be um, a variance <clears throat> or an allowance for height when you have a, an existing home and perhaps your house and your garage or your, your street level are, aren't the same, and you have to extend your elevator down to that level. Um, so in, in a lot of cases, <coughs> we feel that your elevator has to exceed the height of your house because it's not just attached to the house, it's trying to attach 
it's trying to bring you down to street level or parking level. And in some cases, it's going gonna, it's gonna to require more than 28 feet to do that. And so we have um, a modest uh, allowance in here for height on elevators. <clears throat> and, um, and then <clears throat> the permitted en encroachments into the setback is for regrading that needs to exceed 30 inches. If you have to do a ramp or something like that, or you're trying to you know, level out your grade between your driveway and your, your front door, right now you're limited to 30 inches if it's in the setback. And um, we're, we're making allowances for that. Yes, Rob. So I have two questions. My first question is if you could go through a little bit about the standards of what you mean by the whole house needs to meet the standards. Um, and what I'm kind of referring to is like, does every bathroom need to be accessible to handicap or however it's defined? Does every kitchen cabinet need to be accessible to various things? Does every you know, every square foot of the house you need to meet that standard, or is it only a certain percentage? And what are those standards? That's my first question. I'd like to turn this over to Merle Mar Rambo here. Uh, Mr. Mr. Rambo, I've just got to say, I, I wanted to meet a Rambo, and <laughs> I'm glad to have you here. Um, so um, please, if you can help us, uh, help Rob understand that. Maybe I'll ask my second question first, and then you can get on to the full okay. presentation, because the second set a little more to how the code works. Second question is if there's a house that already meets the standard, it's 5750 and it's got an elevator, the ramps, whatever, and they've already done it within their 5750, can they gen then just take this 575 square foot and build an additional room off to the side? I would think so. You're saying no, but I would think so because it's, it's, a, it's a incentive to, to have a developer provide homes like this. If you're just 5750, it was it was intended as an added incentive. So if the house already complies, I, I don't see why we wouldn't give them that. But it's a matter of, you know, do you want to squelch it down and, and have it be a very limited thing or do you want to make it more readily available? Because I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is in terms of a board discussion is you know, with 5750, it seems to me like someone would be able to meet these requirements with 5750 already. Um, why do they need the extra 500 feet? I understand incentivizing um, to have an inventory within our community that allows this accessibility, not just for the owners, but for visitors, which is, is another aspect of, of this. But I guess that's uh, a discussion for the board. But maybe we'll get to this. Yes, Jeff. I'd like to ask a question about Rob's point here before we go to a second question. Would that be acceptable? John Ealing? Yes. Um, this is very troublesome for me. Um, you know, almost we're walking um, to be not as supportive as I was because this is about zoning and, you know, house size, etc. Rob brings up a very interesting question. If something already complies, why? What's troublesome is what Joanna just said. Why would we give someone an additional 5750 if the structure's already built and complies? Is that a policy question? Uh, okay, so I have to go back. Mer well, I'm asking John Ely oh, first. Okay. Uh, it is a policy okay. issue. Okay, that's a simple, then an explanation. If, that's okay with the chair, fine. But I just wanted to make sure where we stood here as a policy, and then we'll have that discussion. 
Thank you, John. Yes, Joanna. You so I guess when, when we were thinking about existing residences, we weren't thinking about existing ones that already complied. Well, Merle points out that if you have an existing house, then, you're only avail then the only allowance available to you is the elevator allowance. So if you already have that, um, the way this is written, then you wouldn't receive the additional. So theoretically, you could build a second elevator that complies <laughs> as well. No? So if there's already an existing elevator, you couldn't get this 100 foot per floor elevator allowance. I think the way it's written right now, yes. Yes, you could or yes, you could? Yes, you could. It's available. You could, you could build a second elevator. Right. So, Mr. Rambo, you're consulting with Joanna. <clears throat> what What are your thoughts on the subject? Well, uh, first, just I guess a quick word of introduction. I'm very happy to be a resident of Pitkin County. I have been for uh, a little while here, but my background has involved many million square feet of accessibility in various projects throughout the western half of the United States. So, I'm supposedly versed in this, and I was happy to take Cindy's invitation and to join the team and hopefully provide some advice. Was that in, in residential accessibility? Some residential, but most of it is schools and for special needs students and the, the youth that you know becomes that lifelong generation in time. So it, I've been involved in a lifelong sort of application of that in 40 years of practice, mostly outside of Colorado. But at any rate, with that minor introduction and a lack of royalties I might have, uh, I'd like to answer these, these questions very specifically because they're actually written into what the, the department's already done. Not that it's the right answer would be easily changed by the, the board. But one of the things that we try to do is look at putting together an exemption that would be very efficient, that would be, number one, based on whole house accessibility and from that point, then take a hierarchy of items as ANSI does, which incidentally is the code that the city uses in part and is a reference code that's being adopted by Pitkin County in the next year. So it is a national standard that's very well recognized. Uh, I might start with the specific questions because if I don't, I'll get too far behind. Uh, under the section four elevators, it says a qualified elevator is allowed. It doesn't say multiple elevators. So Mr. Edmund's question is absolutely to the point of what we've been trying to work on since last April of crafting with the help of everybody in the planning department, uh, uh, attorneys in town. We've, we've gone as broad as we can. We've surveyed over 100 houses that are existing houses. Uh, so several points. One, it states that only a qualified elevator is allowed. So that's just one. It also states that the 575 square foot exemption is for only a newly constructed house cannot be applied in an existing house. So I uh, kind of reached for my papers here as soon as you asked that question, because it goes on then to say for an existing multi-level single family residence, uh, or I'm sorry, I've gone on too far here, that uh, for an existing multi-level single family residence to be remodeled or renovated, it goes on to list then that the limitation for uh, that existing house would only be for an elevator. 
Hence, if it has an elevator and is already compliant in the whole house sense, it would get nothing more. If a new house is being designed, and we, uh, Kim Raymond was also very active in our committee. I don't know if Kim's here yet, but. Uh, on the other side, the blind side. I have many blind sides. Anyway, uh, obviously, this is a very complex addressing of the code to integrate it with the, the work and growth management that the county already has in place. But uh, again, I believe that answers those questions. Uh, Mr. Hatfield had a question, and I can't recall at the beginning uh, exactly what that was, but it seems to relate to it. Well, going back to where I started from, what was going on in my brain, is that as I read this, this really is about physical limitations and accessibility for those with disabilities, or however we might term that. But it never said it in here. So my first question was, is there, does there need to be a cause, you know, of, okay, well, someone is gonna visit or someone is gonna live in our home and then there would be a cause to do this. It's very important what we have clarified through this continued discussion about new and existing. Yes. That helps satisfy myself. I am totally supportive of a new residence saying, well, we want to meet this standard, and when we created 5750, we didn't incorporate this square footage in all the pieces that arrived that were arrived at to get to the 5750. So through that, that fact, I'm okay with that. New residences in existing neighborhood, excuse me, I apologize, existing residents in existing neighborhoods with, you know, typically in our county, uh, Quite a few things are already built out, especially in FAR neighborhoods. So that would be, uh, could be a problem in a neighborhood of expanding beyond the existing footprint or you know square footage that already existed. So this has been very critical for me in identifying newly and existing. And I assure you, I read this, but somehow I did not. I admit that I did not pick that up. So. That there is a, quite a difference for me. Thank you. Yes, and, and if, if, if it pleases the board, I, would, I have a very simple chart that might be helpful in, in further addressing that because we, we've struggled with the same issues as we've worked over the last eight months trying to at least get uh, what we felt was a very responsive approach to this. Uh, I won't explain all of this, but I will answer any questions. If I had to put it down to a one, two, three circumstance, and, and with the planning and zoning group, this was something that was appreciated, by the way. Before you even get to this page, you have to get past the question that Jack answered. Because in the beginning, when we, we talked with the department about this, again, the whole house issue came up. And ANSI doesn't address parts of houses in its code. It addresses the whole house. So there's an absolute threshold, a foundation, a point of beginning, whatever we want to call it, that all floors and all levels of that house that have living space on them have to be accessible. And ANSI goes on to say if there isn't any living space on it, you don't have to do it. Furthermore, ANSI says if there's a bedroom, you have to have an accessible bathroom on that floor. So there's a sort of universality, I'm saying that right, 
to the way that code is written, and I know that uh, I noticed Dennis is here today. Uh, he's worked a good deal with this code in commercial, uh, in fact, wonderful commercial projects within the community. But again, the threshold is you have to meet on all levels. And then in order of questions, if someone applies for a building permit and asks to utilize this exemption, the exemption is very tight. They have to prove by their plans, by their remodeling, or by what other circumstances they're planning a new house, how they'll go about meeting this. And at the end of the day, for most houses, it only takes about 350 square feet other than an elevator in a newer home to provide that entire difference on every level. Because many of the homes that I looked at were newly constructed homes, about 40 of them that we used in our sampling, and about 60 existing homes were in our sampling. And that's how we came up with the number of about 350 square feet. And if it's in a multi-level house, it has little impact on the footprint of the house because a little bit's in the, the uh, a bedroom here, a bit of it's in a bathroom on every level, a bit of it's in the kitchen, a bit of it's in the dining room area, a bit of it's in the laundry area, because all of those areas are required to be accessible by ANSI. So if you take that bits and pieces at a time, it doesn't add up to a whole lot of square footage, but it does require, again, that threshold of being able to meet it on every level. ANSI goes on to say that a, a parallel threshold is that there must be parking for the resident and for a visitor. Doesn't say it has to be enclosed, deluxe, or anything else, but it does require that that parking not have any significant slope between it and the main entrance to the building. It shows a very clear preference that it be in a garage or it be in a carport or it be covered, realistic to the weather in the neighborhoods, so to speak. But it does require not only that the building itself be accessible internally, but that you can arrive at that building without uh, any accessibility encumbrance. The point being, I suppose, that no one can predict when someone handicapped or limited in their accessibility capabilities will visit you. I mean, if, if you imagine, uh, I don't want to pick on any particular establishment because we're being recorded here, but you can make a list of the establishments that you can't even get into. We found that zero, and I truly mean this, zero of the hundred homes that I looked at met Anson completely. But some were very close. Back to Mr. Edwards' question, uh, some of them were close enough that they would still not qualify for any measurable part of this because uh, generally speaking, when you get in the 5750 range, the kitchens are big enough, the bathrooms very often don't comply. So that there may be a caveat or an application of this that, that uh, recognizes that. But I think, again, it's very important to recognize that uh, as you look at your inventory of residential properties here in the county, there's everything from soup to nuts. But even what's proposed here would likely only prove feasible for about 75 to 80 percent of existing residences because some are simply too complicated to reach every level. And in every case, without exception that we looked at, because it's the homeowner's burden to, to pay for these improvements and to invest in that home, they're making that investment perhaps for themselves, but they're doing, as Joanna said, placing something in inventory 
and starting to make a change that some years from now, this commission or your successors may well look at making this a requirement because many communities, some larger cities certainly, uh, have a requirement that all doors and a portion of the interior facilities of any new house that's built be compliant. On the other hand, this is uh, a piece of a change in your zoning regulations that is intended to induce <coughs> this investment to be made and to have a minor impact. At the bottom of the chart that I, I provided there, which is a summary, or I guess looking at it in general, the elevator stands on its own. I don't mean any pun by that, but as it currently is, that's a hundred square feet of footprint that most homes are going to have to have in order to meet the criteria. There's a few exceptions on flatter lots that have grade level entry or they can gain entry by a ramp. A ramp is certainly preferable. So they might use that same 100 square feet to build part of a ramp, but it won't build much. My point there being the square footages that are allowed here require a partnership between this, um, this exemption and the individual homeowner because the homeowner is going to have to do a number of things, especially in a renovation, that require moving walls. It's not easy to make a corridor wider. When you make it wider, you sometimes need to borrow from the bathroom that wasn't big enough. And by the time you're through your set of dominoes, remodeling a house is very, very difficult. And we did spend some time looking at specific examples of that, which we'd be happy to show you if, if you care to. But that was a lot of the planning and zoning boards uh, uh, processing or questioning of how exactly does this apply? Is, is it just for one house? It's certainly not limited to what I've applied for, and I, I didn't pick an easy one, but I think it's a much broader application. But that being given, the elevator explains itself. All of those basic needs that Joanna summarized, right down to the accessibility to the washer dryer and, and other appliances, all of those are intended to fit within that basic allowance, which would be 350 square feet for all of the zone districts smaller than 5750 and it would max out at the 575 square feet for an existing house that is in that 5750 range or above. So there's really two pieces to that. There's also an accessory piece that deals with replacing stairs, which Joanna explained. But if you go to the bottom of the chart, the average difference on footprint, which in a way goes back to Jack's question, I think, I'm sorry, Mr. Hapkins' question. Are we formal? No, you can call him Jack. You have to call us. I'm not right. Hey, please feel free. Jack or anything else. But if you go down to the bottom impact of this, again, having more than an amateur status in this, the elevator is not going to be more than 100 square feet on the footprint of that house, no matter what, unless the architect or the, the contractors made some sort of a drastic error or found an elevator that can move in angles as it goes up the building. Uh, movie style, I suppose. Uh, in any event, that has only a limited effect, and the, the amendment, uh, the exemption as it's been written by the department, also says that that elevator can't be on the front facade of the house and gain anything over the regulated height of the house. In other words, if the house is limited to 28 feet, it can't be more than 28 feet into the air. So there is no change in that that would have an impact on the neighborhood from the basic height. In many cases, we found that the elevator can be moved to the side or the rear of the house, depending on where the vehicular access is. 
and more often than not, it doesn't even require that small, as Joanna referred to it, 30-inch extension for gear that could be above the elevator or service space. So there are some additional limitations there. The typical on-site effect of the changes within the house is almost always between 175 and 350 square feet on the footprint or on the ground. So the actual land use change that we typically look at in a zoning scenario is very small. In a new house, it's zero. And for many of the amendments that occur within larger existing houses, there's no change in the footprint at all. It's a matter of reallocation of space to expand that bedroom or other area that might, or bathroom that might be involved. So uh, a good deal of time was spent on this, again, looking at the, the land use aspects and the fact that it uh, follows in many uh, neighborhoods where uh, the homes are built out, where you have someone that may be uh, 60 some years old, a young person that may live in that house, uh, and they just don't have room to add to that house under the current standards. Taking it as an example, if an elevator is currently counted as 400 square feet, it's very difficult to go to someone over in Mountain Valley, for example, and say, and I'm being a bit facetious, you need to remove two or three bedrooms if you want to add an elevator. Because you'd have to do that if there wasn't an exemption to allow people access throughout that home. So there's, I suppose, a fine line between saying, how can you create something that doesn't give people additional living space but lets them use the space that they already have. How can you end a restriction that exists these days that if you are injured, you can't really proceed to use all the levels of your home? And that's one of the reasons why ANSI, for example, doesn't really recognize making one floor of a home accessible. If someone wants to do that under your current uh, uh, guidelines, they certainly can. But I think the aim of the code is to recognize that no one knows when they'll be injured. I know uh, Barb Campbell is with me today. Uh, she uh, may share some comments at the appropriate time, but uh, she's one of those people that's had four foot surgeries and was on a knee scooter and could not walk on any steps. Zero, other than, I suppose, sliding up and down. But if you, if you count the aspects of dignity of being able to get in and out of your house, and then you put on top of that that the most probable use of this accessibility isn't the homeowner, it's a visitor, and it isn't a permanent disability for the homeowner. It's a short-term disability that results in a minor error uh, that may have happened uh, exercising, may have happened in an auto accident, uh, frequently happens that way, maybe sporting related. So more often than not, again, that code recognizes that the house would become accessible to resident and visitor, but it also requires that you design the blocking behind the walls in those bathrooms to accept grab bars. You design other facets of the house, particularly kitchen counter heights, the controls to the lights and the main mechanical thermostats. All of those have to be within reach of a wheelchair. I happen, I happen to have a, a nephew who uh, requires an eight-foot wheelchair that under these regulations couldn't make it work and I guess would have to go back and, and try and rethink that. But as I look at the main body of the public uh, and the types of things that cause shorter, long-term accessibility challenges, uh, this code amendment, I believe, would meet probably 98% of the people, at least, 
and maybe somewhat above that. So it isn't perfect. There are people that have such catastrophic injuries that they're prone literally in a wheelchair, and even this would make it more difficult. I guess one last thought as we looked at this. We did add to this a second means of egress, and in the process also recognized stairlifts, because paramedics and other emergency services providers would have a very difficult time removing someone to better care or a level of care outside of their own residence if the stairs are not at least about 44 inches wide. Many, many of the homes that are the 70s and 80s homes have 36-inch wide stairs. A little bit hard to do a gurney on that. And that's an application that has nothing to do with an accessibility that was known an hour before. Maybe the person's accessibility challenged. Maybe it's just an emergency circumstance. Also, ANSI has an anomaly in it, and it does not on its own require a second means of egress from the house. So you get into these four and five and six level houses that seem to come into the mountainside, various subdivisions. I use Mount Valley because I think you can find one of everything in that particular subdivision. But as you look at those homes, a second means of egress, I think, is something that is a very positive thing, and that is also a threshold requirement. So in order to get the exemption back to questions from either end of the group, in order to get that exemption, you have to have that second means of egress, and that is solely for life safety and for the safety of those care providers who in these communities are volunteers. Thank you. Yes, George. You know, I like the concept. I think it's a good idea. Certainly the elevators, adding allowance for 100 square feet for existing, I think makes perfect sense. My question is on new homes, and Joanne, you started this conversation by saying you're viewing this as an incentive for developers to provide accessibility as they're building. So my question is, if it's an incentive, rather than having to expand what is already, I think, is a fairly large home size when you get to over 5,000 square feet, did you look at the idea of perhaps allowing some GMQS and some points to enhance their ability to get through GMQS? I mean, were there other options that you looked at? No, we did not look at. You mean if somebody were actually to go through the GMQS process? Right. We were looking at exempting, getting rid of the GMQS. This is an exemption from that. Yeah. I think that's something I would like to see considered and how that would weigh in. Again, we're looking for incentives, and perhaps that would be as strong an incentive for a developer or builder than just allowing an extension of already, I think, a generous FAR. Yes, Lance, you have your hand up. Yeah, Lance Clark. We could look at that in terms of at the point we get to revising our GMQS scoring system, but in terms of doing that in lieu of a straight-out floor area exemption, it really wouldn't accomplish 
the goal of getting accessible houses on the market because we only do one or two Jim Hughes houses a whole year. It just, it's not that many people go through the GMQS process. So if that were the only way to achieve additional floor area for accessibility, we wouldn't really achieve much. The, uh, and, you know, my view is that this actually isn't an incentive. It is simply an allowance for, um, for circumstances that might occur. There's not much incentive in having a, a bathroom, counters that are low or extra bathrooms or, I mean, these are all expenses. These, this is not, this is not in effect an incentive. An incentive would be 500 square feet if you had these things installed. That's the, that would be an incentive. But this in itself is simply an allowance for either the realities that Mr. Rambo described or going forward for somebody building an accessible house. I, I just don't see it as being um, an issue of people cheating or people doing this for no reason whatsoever except to gain some space. I just don't see that. I, I, I see it as recognizing the realities of current living and, and the circumstances that some people have to live in. And I think it's a worthwhile <coughs> thing for us to do. And, and going forward, the incentive could be <coughs> extra square footage aside from what's necessary to have an accessible house. But at this point, this, there's no incentive here. It's just an allowance for realities. Um, Rob? Um, Michael, I agree with you on a lot of different levels, although I, I would like to just know that it's been brainstormed on what other potential incentives there may be to accomplish the same thing as opposed to just adding square footage. Um, you know, when you're talking 5750, I think it can be built with a reasonable house within 5750. And is there another way to incentivize someone to stay within 5750 and still meet these standards? And I, I just don't think that's been answered within the packet that's been given us. And I had that written down as a question just because I don't think PNZ has fully brainstormed that. I mean, is there a financial incentive that we could do this? And, you know, for the record, for the 20 years that I knew my grandfather, he had MS and he was in a wheelchair. You know, I spent 10 years of my life visiting him, taking the wheelchair out of the back, get, you know, and this was 20 years ago when there wasn't a lot of ADA compliances around and, and did a lot of traveling with my grandfather. And I know the, the challenge of it. Sam Ferguson is a good friend of mine, comes over to my house from time to time. We carry him up a flight of stairs when he comes over. Um, you know, I'm, my house is never going to be compliant for ADA, but it would be nice for him down the road, 20, 30, 40, however many years from now, to have more houses that these people can visit with, uh, you know, without having those hassles because they're citizens like the rest of us. Um, so I, I would make that request too, that, that somehow we study whether or not there is a different way of incentivizing and not having to go above this 5750 period. And I just don't think that that question's been answered. The other question that I have um, written down reading through this is long-term compliance with this. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to say everybody's a saint out there, but let's face it, people build things, they get their COs, and then they 
non-compliantly change things back. And I'm not sure that, we're, that this might happen from time to time, and I want to make sure that we have long-term compliance, that these houses stay um, as meeting these standards. And I don't know what the triggers are to make sure that those compliances, that that compliance stays, whether it's a new building permit, whether it's a, you know, five-year verification, you know, that they haven't taken out the handle holds in the bathroom, they haven't changed the toilets, the sink heights, or whatever, um, because really the purpose is for this, for, you know, for them to get the incentive, they have to have this house be that way for its in perpetuity. Um, so I, I, that's another issue that I think needs to be addressed, which is how, how do we assure long-term compliance of this? Could I? Yes, sir. In order to respond yeah. to the second part of that, what would be done in a renovation or a new construction, either one in order to comply, would be to make the, the corridors uh, at least four foot wide. For example, it plays out to be a couple inches wider than that because of door openings. It seems unlikely that someone would go back and remodel that corridor to a three-foot corridor in order to gain a foot in the room next to it. And I'm using that as an example because it sounds a little facetious on the surface, but if you carry that through the house, it's unlikely that if they've got a shower stall that they've made so that it doesn't have a curb on it, it's unlikely they're going to add a curb back to that later or to shrink that shower stall down because in reality, to meet the uh, accessibility code, the stall only has to be a little over three foot by three foot anyway. Uh, in a kitchen, uh, if there's an island in the middle of that kitchen and you have to have at least four feet on the side of that island, between faces of cabinets, it's a bit more if there's a dishwasher that opens into it or whatever. It's really unlikely they're <coughs> going to move that island again. And in a way, the answer to your your second series of, of comments or, or questions is one where I think is pretty much self-healing. And even though there is a sunset built into this, and there could certainly be a reinspection, it seems unlikely that those changes would occur internally. Now, how that applies back to a, a, an existing 5750 house is that certainly the language could be changed that only up to that 10% in an existing larger house, only up to that amount, or rather the, up to the amount of the elevator, as it specifically applies to that, would be available. So I'm deliberately saying two confusing things in a row, because if that house already exists, most of the spaces inside of it are going to comply, and there is no credit other than an elevator available to that house. There's absolutely none available to a 5750 house that already exists except the elevator, and if it already has a compliant elevator, there's no credit available anyway. Where it gets a little tougher, and this is something that PNZ addressed for an hour and a half plus work session, <coughs> or during that, where it gets tougher is when you're planning that new 5750 house. Uh, I would have to personally agree with you that if there are uh, additional restrictions on that, that would make sense. I don't know how you can incentivize it Financially, though, I mean, that's a little tougher challenge. And it would appear to me that that's probably either something that would be added to this or possibly if it were structured as an incentive, that would be follow-up uh, 
changes, it would be an exemption on its own or it would be a change in the zoning on its own if it were written solely as an exemption. It has the same effect as saying that effective January 1st of two years from now or whatever, all homes have to comply that are over 5,750 square feet. That would be my personal answer to that, although I have no authority to suggest that. I think after a certain period of time or at the sunset of this original, which is only three years if you think about that, by the time you apply for a building permit, these people are busy these days. I know it takes a while to get one. I'm teasing. But by the time you apply for a permit, you build and everything else, but this thing is going to have sunsetted. And we're predicting, I am at least, and some of the people I'm working with outside the department, we're predicting that this may affect 20 to 30 homes, and that's it in that three-year period. And maybe it's at the end of that period where, and I'm only talking here, sharing ideas, that you would consider changing to making all of the 5,750 square foot houses comply, period. Just like you pre-announced that a zoning change will be made, or I'm sorry, not a zoning change, a code standard will change after a certain period of time. It would make wonderful sense to me that you just changed and said that for all new construction after a particular period of time, it complies. And then you could leave out the elevator if you wanted, so that people claimed that there was a hardship there in a 5,750s house if it had to comply with the exception of an elevator, and an elevator could be added later. That would also be reasonably acceptable to ANSI, because ANSI recognizes that you're going to have to add grab bars and you may have to have a little higher seat and toilet. And by the way, a quick aside, I appreciate what you're saying about MS. I have the blessing of knowing two people who want a very long-term employee that isn't employed anymore, but he can't come out here and visit me. And as you go through that list, it's very difficult. And I also had an experience with a sampling of older people that are all 88 years or so or older that are World War II vets that I was involved with. And for 1,500 of those people to travel for a day, this is a very real example, it took almost 1,000 volunteers. And these are World War II vets that went to Washington for a day. They didn't plan on that either. But I'm saying the number of people it takes to help and the sensitivity of the way this has been written to allow the caregiver to be able to go with in the elevator that's in this house and that the caregiver or help giver or emergency services provider, now those are all things that I think are contributed to that. Sorry I interrupted you. Thank you. Jack? Well, this is an interesting conversation and quite a challenge. Where my preparation brought me to sit in this seat today for this, I had some ideas and understanding of what's going on. And then as we're starting to delve into it, I have, well, gee, well, there's a question here and an answer here. And then, well, we don't go far enough here and et cetera. For me, at this moment, there's a lot more work to be done here because I think we've just raised some basic questions. And I think we as an organization and as a community care that we address this kind of an issue. But I'm thinking maybe 
And regardless of what I've said before, because this is an evolving issue in my brain right here today, I, I don't think this is right for approval. I think we can do better. And I question whether we shouldn't have standards such that are requirements right from the beginning, but it's going to take more work how to implement that. And then I step back and say, well, maybe your idea, we do this for a certain period of time, learn, get some experience, and then evolve it. That might be so, too. But, uh, I mean, a lot of what Pitkin County does and our reputation, quote unquote, is tough on land use and, you know, but we also care about people in, in, in this community. So, for me, I, I mean, I like Rob's idea about 5750 and working for new residences within that area to require this. But then I would make one exception about the elevators because I wouldn't require people to put an elevator in initially. There's always that option if there's the need because there's two different worlds here. The interior, no, three. The elevator actually for access within the unit, the access to the elevator or uh, the home, where, whichever, however that would accomplish. And then the interior remodeling pieces or, you know, the capacity when you built a new home to have the doorways the right size and the fixtures certain, you know, compatibility for these needs. So I, I really question whether, um, if we've gone far enough here, what I heard is we have not investigated making this a requirement uh, to start off for new homes. And then having heard existing and new and there was a difference and then the sheet raised another question because it says here at the very top for basic remodeling exemptions applicable to multi-level remodeling where 65% of the existing residence is retained. So then that, well, what does that mean? That means two, uh, one third of the residence could possibly be remodeled, demolished, or whatever, whatever. It, there's just a lot of questions here. And for me, I, I wanna make sure we do the right thing from the beginning. And though this isn't the wrong thing, I assure you, I'm convinced of that, it could evolve to answering a lot of the questions we have here today and that we've heard. You know, when I've, the hair in the back of my neck went up immediately when we were talking about when Joanna said, well, yeah, you'd still get the 750 if it's already compliant. Uh-uh, that doesn't work for me. And I, hmm, I think we qualified that. But I think there's more work to be done here to, to make sure, again, we implement it right from the beginning to where possibly part of the, we already get there, part of the where we want to get to at the end, we already arrive at at the beginning, if that makes any sense, you know. Do a little more work, look at it long term, because, it, you know, quite frankly, this appears then with an aging population. We know that, not only in Pickham County, but the country due to us baby boomers. It just might make sense to require a number of these things from the get-go. So, Jack, but, but would you object to, to instituting <coughs> this and then looking 
further? I mean, it seems to me, given your request, if we were to, to consider making it mandatory for all houses uh, at 5750 that you would for get, new homes for new homes that you would get people in here saying listen you are uh, you are uh, increasing the cost of my home and I have and people will say this I have no intention of becoming disabled and so why are you doing this to me and so you're actually going to engender opposition to what what is presented in front of us as far as I'm concerned it's a very good idea and it's the same problem we're facing with our fire code amendment for, uh, for sprinklers in every, every new construction. We put that off because it's a significant added cost to our residents. And we're just not sure how that works yet. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I can understand that we should be improving our, our building stock, but I'm not sure that this is the time to do it. Um, I think going forward on a voluntary basis now and then looking at it in the future is the way to go. Um, and we'll see how this voluntary basis works, quite frankly. And we'll see if people uh, adhere to, to the, what's outlined here and whether they use it for some purposes that I can't imagine, but some of you can. Um, I, I just think this is a good starting place as outlined here. And Joanna, I can't find exactly where it's term limited to three years. Yes. Sunset provision? Yeah. And Michael, when you're done, with yeah. a quick, very I, quick just, comment. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's really, when you address Merle and Joanna, you're really addressing us about do, would we think it's a good idea? So that's, sure. that's why I'm trying to address, answer the question back it's to you. On page 33, of the ordinance provision five, these ANSI floor area and roads management exemptions shall be reviewed by the Board of County Commissioners three years after the date of adoption, at which point they must be reviewed or they will automatically expire. The purpose of the review will be to evaluate how the exemptions have been used and whether it is appropriate for the exemptions to be retained, modified, or repealed. So you have that on page 33? Yes. yes. Yeah, my packet only goes up to 24. So, so this Oops. It explains some difficulty in finding that. So, um, oh, well, I'm sorry, 30, it may, 33. 33 is, is the code page. Page, yeah, I'm looking at the code page. page in terms of your scan. It's like page eight. Page, page eight. We always have this problem, don't we, there? Yes. But, but so, in, in any case, Jack, it is limited. It is, in, in essence, an experimental. Uh, effort at, 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 at satisfying some abilities to convert your house without paying a penalty, essentially. So, yes, Jack, yeah, you want to uh, respond? Two things. It, it would appear a lot of the interior remodeling if, on a new residence doesn't really cost a lot more if your uh, doorway, you know, your header is six inches wider or whatever. Uh, you know, all that's part of the process of bidding and, and, and uh, construction. Uh, one question I have that makes me hesitate, hesitate about saying, yeah, well, let's go forward with just this, is how to address the issue of incorporating these kind of changes within the 5750. <coughs> this doesn't do that. This allows additional square footage up to 10%. So 
you know, that question is not being answered here. It might be and might not be further answered in this conversation. I don't know. But I, I just always have a problem adding more square footage and more square footage and, you know, hey, we want to do the right thing short and long term. Yes, Rob. Um, a couple things. First, I agree with Michael. I think this is a great first step. I just think as we look at the second step, we should look at whether or not this is the proper incentive. I don't think this is dramatically going to change things over the next three years. Um, but I do think the question that needs to be brought up, and it doesn't have to be brought up before approving this, it has to be brought up with the renewal of this, is, is this the proper incentive to make this happen? The second thing is, I, I wasn't proposing that we make a requirement that all homes in Picking County be ANSI rated, um, but I do think there are some other incentives that could go along the lines with this to make more homes visitor friendly and um, with limited accessibility to, uh, to guests and not just necessarily fully ANSI required. If someone wants a third floor bedroom that's only accessible by a flight of stairs but has an elevator to the first and second floor, maybe we should be incentivizing that as well, even though they don't meet all the ANSI requirements. If the front door is accessible and the first, the, the first floor bathroom has the accessibility you know, with a, with a bedroom off of the first floor for a overnight you know, relative, guest, or something, the house is not going to meet the ANSI requirements, therefore they are not going to get this incentive but they are still providing, in my, in, in my uh, thought process, they're providing a benefit long term by having a greater percentage of the inventory accessible for, for visitors to that home as well as potential you know, um, purchasers or the, or the long term tenant of that home moving from the third floor down to the first floor bedroom, which is what my grandfather did in his house. You know, my grandmother still had a maintained their bedroom on a, on an upper floor, but it allowed them to stay in their home because the first floor was handicapped accessible, but the rest of the home wasn't. And the way I read this is that the home has to completely comply with handicap accessibilities. So I mean, these are just things to note in terms of um, you know what we should be looking at three years from now um, or before three years from now in terms of how we can greater incentivize um, various things. But, so I, I want to make it clear, I wasn't necessarily suggesting at all, although I would, I would certainly have the discussion of whether or not all homes in Picking County should be ANSI qualified, um, meet that standard. But I don't, I don't think that's the route that we're going to go down um, just because of the population. Um, but I do think more homes should have accessibility for visitors, for you know, limited type things, and that would be something to add to this in the future. But I think this is a good start, and I think it's a great thing that's been brought up and thought about. The, the, uh, just, just a second, sir. Uh, the, I mean, for the commissioners, it seems to me, in order to deal with this issue, we just earlier today approved the purchase of a unit at Elk Run. I think we should consider 
as as part of this issue is to make those two units we just purchased accessible and see what the costs are and see and see what the practical realities of making a unit is and and we would learn from that and we would set an example for our our populace on how to do it so uh, rather than talking theory about this I think we should actually engage in an experiment of our own uh, down and out run on making those accessible I mean that's that's a worthwhile thing for us to do um, but it's just a suggestion but and I think Rob has an interesting point is uh, maybe it's not a hundred percent compliant to ANSI maybe it's just partially compliant what's what's what are the advantages of having incentives for that that's that's useful so that's a useful thought George I was still um, because we, we still are using this term incentives and I still believe we need to uh, do a little more work and see if there's other incentives that we can uh, come up with I, I certainly am not going to be supportive of requiring uh, homes to be ANSI uh, compatible for any homes over 5750 I think that is a burden that uh, to, the, to the homeowners that just is, is not going to uh, be acceptable and, and I think uh, for us to look at uh, converting um, our recently purchased homes uh, I'm not sure that's a good idea because that's going to be a substantial expense and as a as a as an example for other existing homeowners I, I think it's not going to be reasonable um, because as you said earlier um, the new home it's easier to incorporate uh, this in versus trying to convert an existing home where you have to start knocking walls out and moving bathrooms uh, you know I think that that's that's an expense that's going to be a tremendous burden unless unless it's absolutely necessary and then that homeowner would, would take that cost on, on their own but but I don't see us going down that path uh, so I in general I'm supportive of this um, I would just like staff to go back and, and you to go back and just see if there's uh, either for the short term or for the long term other ways that we can incentivize uh, homeowners developers uh, to look at uh, meeting ANSI um, requirements. Mr. Rambo, you wanted to make a comment and I, I cut you off. Well, I, I, no, I, my place to stop in there. But, uh, <coughs> just a couple of really quick answers. Jack had a comment earlier. What does 65% have to do with this? That's for renovations. In order to qualify, for that renovation allowance, you have to keep 65% of the structure of the house. In other words, this is a green incentive. Speaking of incentives, that is a very clear-cut incentive that's built into this. Uh, <coughs> turn the whole thing down, turn down all the trees in the standard teardown. But that relates to Mr. Newman's comment a moment ago, too, that this is a big burden if somebody decides to do it. They have to be really committed to it. You know, and uh, also going back, if I could just momentarily, uh, to something that uh, Rob had said. I think we viewed this as a group, and a large group has worked on this, as being a stepping stone and a commitment of leadership to saying for 36 months we're going to see how this works within our community, see if the incentive will be picked up to be funded privately 
totally private one. Uh, we certainly had a good deal of discussion about providing public monies, and it fell flat. You know, there, and we didn't encourage it. It's a private sector. And I think that uh, in terms of if you were to uh, forward something like this, or it were to be amended a bit by the department, because I'm not really sponsoring this, obviously the department is. But if you were to forward this, I think it would be a great point of beginning. And it would also give the Board of Adjustment a standard by which to allow everything Rob listed very carefully about making parts of a home accessible. It would allow them a criteria saying, is this compliant as a part of getting to this? Can we accept this? But as it stands right now, there's nothing that they can gauge that against. And I, I would like to defer at, you know, the, the chair's convenience uh, to some of the people who are here today that uh, you know, might want to make a brief comment or, or whatever. But uh, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine anybody more qualified than Sarah than Dennis because he's a great building inspector. I, and and I'm, I'm just making a general suggestion because yeah, I can't no, answer something. It, it is, a, as you point out, it is, it is worthwhile to have public comments. And indeed, this is a, is a public hearing for this code amendment. So we, we will um, have public comment. Jack, you have a yeah. Um, yeah, I want to make it perfectly clear. I never stated, never intended to state, and wouldn't state that we should make all homes compliant. That means existing homes. That never came up, so that's not a point. Um, I really do believe that if you want to talk about leadership, leadership is looking at new existing homes and making doorways and, and just these interior things, not access from outside, not elevators, but the interior space. I hope we figure out a way and because I get the message, we're not going to do as my suggestion and look at this now, but so this is a great starting point and we ought to, you know, leadership is seeing what part, partially what the future is, just like climate change. You know, there's some that even deny that it's not even here. Uh-huh. What a joke. Um, so leadership is getting past, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of components that maybe uh, you need to just see beyond. And I'll leave that all up to you all. Um, Thank you, Jack. This is a public but, hearing. And but I'm not finished. I'm sorry. I thought I thought you were, Jack. I apologize. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think... And I was thinking of this before Rob said this, but I think Rob is hitting on something very important. I wouldn't say the whole house has to be compliant. What if you only wanted to do one floor? It makes real good sense. You ought to be able to do this. And is it, and is it an exemption or is it an opportunity? I look at it as an opportunity. So I think we ought to be more flexible. I'm not interested in GMQS exemptions. GMQS has nothing to do with this square footage. And I don't want to have to investigate that. It means staff goes down the road of trying to tweak an already complex process to, to the point, what is the gain? What's the net gain? Well, we want to be here anyway. And I think the incentive is actually to allow this to be happening. Now, I certainly have that concern about anything over and above 5750. But that's time, you know, I understand that's going to be looked at possibly later. But I, I think, and we'd maybe lead, uh, need our um, 
our county attorney's advice on this, that there ought to be some structural changes, some language that says this has to be all compliant or not. Individual floors ought to be able to access a piece of this square footage because it makes a whole lot of sense and we know how our terrain is, the topography here. It might make a lot of sense just to do one floor. Thank you. I'll ask you. I was just, for the record, this is, I put this on the agenda as a public hearing. It is publicly noticed, but it's not the official public hearing, which will be at second. Okay. Well, nonetheless, we have lots of people here and it's my discretion to allow public hearing. For the record, the clerk wanted me to clarify that. Thank you for clarifying the record and thank the clerk for pointing that out. Yes, Joanna? I just wanted to acknowledge Jody Edwards and Kim Raymond, who also helped with some of the language here. They were working with us throughout the process. Great. Thank you. So are there members of the public who wish to address this subject at this time? Yes, sir. Please identify yourself. Stand up and come forward. The microphone, just pull the microphone to where you're comfortable. And it doesn't amplify your voice. It just allows the people at grassroots to hear you. My name is Barrett Sear. I've been a resident of the Valley for 16 years now. And just my story, not my wife's and my two children's story is we live up in Mountain Valley. And about three and a half years ago, we had twin girls. One is subsequently in a wheelchair now. And we have been forced to sell our home. And because something like this wasn't enacted, we're at a maximum square footage, like 3,500 square foot out there. To add an elevator there, it's hard to do up in Mountain Valley, three-story homes. But I think we would still be up there if something like this was in place. The blessing for our family is there's an employee housing program here. We've been able to purchase a lot down in W slash J. And Kim has designed a handicapped accessible home for us. So right now, W slash J only allows 3,000 square feet. And what they're proposing in this proposal is, I believe it would grant us an extra 600 square feet. So Kim could attest to what 600 square feet does to a home of my size with 3,000 square feet. It's a three-story home, 2,000 above, 1,000 below. And the grants us an elevator. And I mean, it takes the bedrooms from 12 by 12 to 14 by 15. So it makes a tremendous impact in our lives and in our lives. So I just wanted to share my support for this. And I'm grateful you guys are here. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other? Yes, sir. Doug Smart, 41 Traders Landing. You know, Burrow and Jody came to me because I had some experience in the whole deal. I went on a ski trip almost 14 years ago. I came back three months later in a chair. I basically can't visit any friends. I mean, I have nobody. And a big part of my life is social. And to not have visibility is a huge impact, other than all the stuff 
you have to deal with internally. Um, when I was in the hospital, you know, part of the scheme there is they don't let you go home until you get your house in your house. So I had friends remodel my little 380 square foot uh, studio that I had, you know, and make a shower I could get in, knock the doors down, you know, and then after that, uh, I ended up buying a home that I ended up putting an elevator in myself for about 15 or 20 grand on top of that. And uh, when they approached me, I thought, this is, this is so, um, there have been other communities that require this um, visitability uh, everywhere. And, and I think that, that you're not quite cutting edge, but, but it'd be super, a very, very important step towards that. Because, you know, you talk about the ADA. It came around in 1991, March 13th. 1991. You know how many million people have been disabled before 1991? How long that took to get to that? So, I mean, to make this step now and have a three-year trial period, and I, I would recommend you make everyone do it because um, I don't know anybody that doesn't know somebody in their family or friend that, that has a disability of some kind or another. And, you know, I go to a friend's house, and I get carried up the stairs, and then I can't use the bathroom. Two beers, and I'm out on the back porch taking the pee off the side. You know, and it's like, really? This is where we are in America? You know, it's like, come on, man. It's time. It's time for this to work its way into the conversation. It's time for it to work its way into land use approval. And, and it really is a, a minimal incentive, because everybody uh, it seems to be in Aspen Pickman County is about money. And, and square footage is about how many dollars per square foot am I going to sell this home for? And if it's about that, and they get an extra 500 square feet, if you get the elements of the program, then I think your whole population wins. Because you got a home that has mom can come over, your brother can come in, Sammy can come over and play cards, use the bathroom in a dignified way, sleep in a bed, not be caught on the lower level, but actually go to the kitchen and get a beer out of the fridge come back to the table and watch the TV. I mean, it's, there's so many things that they've talked about. And, and these people have really, really fought out all of the questions that you brought up here today. Maybe didn't get caught in the words as much, but it's, um, I mean, it's vital. I think it's time. You know, because we've been energy efficient. we got rent programs. We, you know, we've got everything going on here. But accessibility and human energy is, is so important. And just to get people to leave their homes and feel confident in themselves to be able to go somewhere is immeasurable onto what you think. It's like, let's all go over to somebody's house. It's like, no, I don't want drunk friends carrying me up or downstairs. I don't want to go, but I want to go. You know, so it's like, if you build the stop that complies, it really is the right way to go. Thank you. Uh, yes, yes, ma'am. My name is Kim Raymond. I'm an architect. I'm helping Barrett on his house. And in doing the work and researching the um, ADA and the anti regulations, and I've known Barrett for a long time, but now this little girl's been three and a half. Part of the thing is, and it goes along with what Dennis said, is you want the people, like he's got his twins, one little girl is mobile, the other one is in a chair. She wants to feel as mobile and as normal as her little sister. So everything we did in the house, making the kitchen, the Space is a little bit bigger, making the power, making her bedroom much bigger so she can easily maneuver her way around. And the rest of the house is just so important for her in the psychological level as much as the physical level. 
And I think that's a lot of what Dennis was getting at too, and that's why I think this is so critical, and especially for the smaller houses, for the working class people, parents, family. They don't even have the option to have 50, 70, 50, but we have a food their house very usable and very livable for the family of four. And I understand my concerns about 50, 70, 50 getting too big and those things we can talk about. But I agree with everyone else that we really should go ahead and get this started now. So Barrett's family can okay. move into their house and other people can use these kind of houses too. So thanks very much for your help with us. Thank you. Are there other members of the public? Yes, sir. Child. Steve, yes. aren't you going to be a commissioner in just a few months? Oh, I think so, yes. Great, great. Oh, you know well, so. In a few days. I know. <laughs> I'm going to sit right there. Or one maybe. Two weeks before the election, we had to move my 96-year-old mother-in-law out of Wickham Terrace, the assisted living, and we moved her into our house. And that, it took me a whole week to do things like add grab bars where they were needed, where there was no blocking behind the walls, um, rearranging furniture, trying to make it safe. And we had to carve an area out of our living room to make it into a bedroom for, for my mother-in-law because there was no accessibility, no possible way to get her into one of our bedrooms. A 28-year-old house, if we had been required 28 years ago, to put a little bit of thought into just the design of the house and put blocking in the walls for grab bars in appropriate places and making a couple of the doors a little bit wider, it would have made a huge difference for us now. Even if we didn't have the whole house totally compliant, it would have made the conversion for us easier at this time. So I think um, it would be good to add some rules just for every house, uh, even if it's like a reminder to builders when they're building a house to take handicapped access and wheelchair access into account and uh, just to make it possible to do a conversion sometime down the road, that would be a good step. Thank you. Thank you. Are there other members of the public who wish to talk at this time? Yes, ma'am. Barb Campbell and Bro mentioned my situation earlier today and I've had several foot surgeries and I have another one coming up and right now the house that we have here in Mountain Valley I would really have to slide up my rear end to get into the front door <coughs> so that's really what made um, Merle come to this um, meeting to try to get the house compliant so it's useful for me and I also have uh, friends that have been in similar situations um, that I can't have over, can't even invite them to this beautiful house that we have, and they can't see the beautiful landscape here in Aspen. And um, it would be a huge step forward if we can take baby steps. It not, no, um, nothing's perfect to begin with. You know, there's a lot of details here that you know may need, need to be improved going forward. You know, to make it, you know. A requirement for everybody on new new um, buildings and that sort of thing but I think whatever we can do to move forward here in this um, county to make it easier and more livable and more visible is a huge step and, and I hope that you know you consider that so I guess just moving forward as much as you can without 
getting caught up in tiny details because there's obviously a lot of people who can benefit just from what we have on the table here. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public who wish to speak at this time? Uh, seeing none, I'll return to the commissioners. Commissioners, do you have any further comments? Yes, George? Um, I didn't notice, but it was mentioned, that we had a sunset clause in here, which makes me a lot more comfortable because, uh, you know, frankly, whenever we start to look at changing code, uh, the devil is in the details and because we never know what the consequences are down the road. But I'm comfortable knowing that we have a, a three-year sunset and we brought up a lot of these issues that the staff could, over the next few years, uh, look at and make sure that things are working the way we want them to work. So I'm comfortable at first reading to move this forward, knowing that we have a sunset clause and we can um, uh, see this, um, determine how it's being used and if it's being used. Thank you, George. Do you have a comment, Rob? I have a comment, so I'll take a, I'll make a motion if you'll entertain it as well. Sir, uh, may I? Yes, yes, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for the patience here. I'd like to know, Joanna, where in this the language proposed that it says the whole structure has to be um, modified in order to qualify for the exemptions, or is that in the actual federal language? Uh, you know about ANSI residences. Is Where does it say that the whole structure has to comply? Yeah, if if you want to take advantage of the exemption, then every floor has to be. It, I can't. I'm not finding that. It's on page uh, code page 32. <coughs> yeah. Okay, that's where I am. So. At the top of the page, um, the following seven. exemption shall okay, be available. Okay. Yeah. There it is. 100%. Um, well, I'm wondering if the board would agree with me in asking staff to modify that so people do have the ability to remodel just a floor. I mean, there are so many situations out there that you might not ever be able to get the benefit of this proposal because you can't do 100%. And so I'd like to know if we could at least look at modifying the language and if John Ely would find that if we modify the language in a minimal way, if we could still do it in two hearings. You know, because it is that a would that be considered a substantial change? I'm only looking at a moderate, you know, not requiring the hundred percent. Or with a qualifying statement. Hang on, yeah. No problem, Jack. We can do that. Okay, now, so then the board, I'd like to request your feedback, uh, see if there's agreement. Uh, Rob? Yeah, and that was part of, was going to be part of my comments. The problem with changing that to like a 75% or, or some sort of minor change is that it needs much more definition than that in my mind. Um, my comment was going to be that I think one of the things that we need to look at over the three-year period of time, regardless of making a change or not, as you have proposed, Jack, is 
is what are the stages of accessibility that could be incentivized at different levels. For instance, visitability, you know, could get you half of the square footage, you know, or having a guest bathroom and first floor accessibility could get you X square footage. I think it's a lot more than just saying 75% of the house, because then it's what 75% of the house, and you know, how does that, how does that work with, with all of the things? So I guess my answer to that is I don't really feel comfortable with that change. I do feel comfortable on trying to have a timeline faster than three years to work on additional code amendment that would allow some incentive, some sort of incentive to have a portion of the house. Again, you have to define what portion. I don't think it's just a percentage of the house to be incentivized somehow. Um, you know, the example that I used earlier from a personal level was my grandparents' house was not fully handicapped, but it was handicapped to an, a, an ability for my grandfather to maintain a dignant, a dignant lifestyle, you know, live in dignity for the, for the last 20 years of his life. Um, there were still areas of the house that were not handicap accessible. So this doesn't apply to that at all. We're missing that in this, in this. and that needs, to that needs to happen. And as Dennis said, now is the time to make that happen, whether it's through incentivizing or, you know, real code amendments that do it, that do it on a larger level. Um, you know, I would look at things like if someone puts in blocking for a handicap a conversion of a handicap bathroom in the future, maybe they should even have a small incentive. Um, there, there are all sorts of things that could be done to incentivize people um, to make minor changes so that it opens up the the visibility, the, uh, the visitability for a guest to come to that house as well as a, a purchaser that might have a portion of their family with handicap needs. Um, and I think that needs to be worked on before the three years, not just when this is up because, but I'm, I don't feel comfortable changing just that percentage number. If, if Jack has an idea of how to, how to change that in a way that's not a significant change at this time, I would, I would certainly entertain. Uh, let, let's go to George, Jack, okay? Uh, George, no. you, you, uh, I just wondered what your feelings were on this um, well, suggestion that Jack had, which was uh, less than 100% modification. Yeah, again, I, I agree with Rob, and that's why I said earlier, I think we have a, a three-year sunset. We, we have time to work on this. We could always bring them back in a year or so, but, I, but if we want to move this forward now and, uh, and see how this works, I. I'm comfortable with that now, but I don't. I don't think we have the information. Staff hasn't looked looked at this. I don't know if it has to go back to P and Z, uh, but but I, I I'm comfortable with it as it is. Okay, Jack. I wish I would have got to speak first because maybe I could change George's mind. I believe uh, uh, with just a couple modifications on page 32 at the top, 
I would like to suggest a couple changes. When I hear what we've heard here, and there's a couple, there's several examples of people who have uh, a real need and a concern, and in particular what Dennis said about accessibility to people's homes. What I'm calling for here is simply having flexibility to get this done in an incremental way if you can't do all of it. And my language would be my modifications, you know, right off the top of my head would be the following. And I will read this where I would adjust because there's only a couple things. The following exemptions shall be available where, and I've got only, I deleted only, a secondary egress to grade is provided, number two, eliminate 100% and say a single family residence provides compliance with section 1005 of the American National Standard as amended, dot, 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 N, three, compliance with ANSI section 104 is met all or in part pertaining to the following elements. Access from a parking area to the entrance of the residence, elevator access between floors where applicable, access to a kitchen, dining, social living areas and related toilet area, and D, access to a bedroom and bath. I haven't substantially changed this at all. At all. I've modified or deleted a couple words, <coughs> and it basically just says we have some flexibility. And that's what I'm asking here, because I'm absolutely convinced, um, and Dennis's comments just reaffirm, we all know people who don't have access to areas where they would like and this gives some flexibility it's not about adding you know an immense amount of square footage not about changing our policy about how we are tough on land use it's just being flexible so i'll just say to uh board uh, yes rob and, and i i understand what you're trying to get at but i'm a little confused jack because the scenario that comes into my head is an applicant comes in and says, I'm going to have accessibility between the parking and the front door, and I'm going to build a handicapped bathroom on the first floor. How much square footage do I get? Who makes that decision? Who reviews that decision? Is it, a, is it an administrative review? Is, you know, is it arbitrary? Does the bathroom get a certain number of square footage? Does the ramp to the front door get a certain number of square footage? On what basis do they make that decision? Do they award the full 505.75? Um, you know, I'm, I just I don't I think it's too vague. Well, I, I want to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. I just don't know how to do it without being vague in the code. Yeah. Well, we direct staff to give some thought to it, and it gets done. Well, Jack, look, I think everybody—I think everybody's sympathetic to your suggestion, but we're still unclear about the implications of what that suggestion would lead to. Um, and I think that if we began with the code as amended here and gave directions to staff to look at to look at a follow-up based on partial compliance and what incentives, 
what square footage, how would you, how would you deal with that at a future date? I, I think we would all be sympathetic to that and staff could do it. But this, I think modifying this now, under your suggestion, leaves, personally I just don't know enough about these standards to, to be comfortable with your modifications. I think we have to pass those, that on to experts as Mr. Rambo and Dennis and, and the rest of our building department um, to deal with that. But at this point, I can't support it because I just can't understand it well enough. Could we allow staff to at least comment on it? My comment? Well, um, let's have George comment on it. Uh, Rob's comment on it. I've commented on it. I, I'm, still, I'm still st staying the same. So. Yeah. So um, I'd like to leave it at that. Um, but I'm not suggesting that staff not look at it for a future investigation along with the PNZ, along with everybody who's helped us so far, if they can accept that burden. Um, Rob? And, and I would just add to that that I don't think this is a put off for three years thing. Yeah, this no, is, no, no, no. This is let's try to make the adjustments as quickly as possible. I mean, my guess is Barrett and this don't want to have a handicapped bathroom in their bathroom, but this requires them to. <coughs> You know, you are going to have to have an a accessibility to 100% of your house. And you could get a partial credit, you know, with, a, with additional code to have, you know, your daughters have accessibility areas in the main part accessible. And I think that's much more applicable to the needs of a lot of people some people might want their whole home, you know, done, but I think a lot of people want, would take advantage of partial amounts. I think a lot more people would take advantage of partial amounts. Yeah, no, I, I'll get to you in a second. I think that's true. I just don't think it's something we can do at this year. Correct. That's all I'm saying. And I think it's a goal that can be met in short order uh, by by our staff and by people who volunteered to help uh, in this process. I'll make because a motion. A great deal of sympathy. I just want uh, Joanna and Mr. Rambo to make final comments. Uh, just two points real quick. One is earlier drafts of this did um, allow 50% compliance. We threw out different numbers recognizing that somebody might not be able to do 100%. Um, but in the interest of having the ordinance move forward and pass, we thought, the board would want us to limit how this um, amendment was used, and we, we think it'd be that favorable to uh, allowing additional FAR and stuff like that. So we purposely made it as restrictive as we could, and we're, we could easily open that up. That's not a problem. But I, I'm not sure I got all of the corrections that you made, Jack. You said delete only, eliminate the 100%, um, add um, that compliance is met all or in part, and yeah, I uh, thought there was a fourth change here. One zero zero four is met, comma, all or in part, comma, pertaining to, and no, there were only three. Those three, okay, then I got them. Just for future reference. Uh, Mr. Rambo? Yes, very quickly. Uh, I agree with everything she said. Much of that language is already written, and a very close variation to what Mr. Hatfield said has been written and I would take it upon myself to provide 
sample language working with the department before you even have your next hearing because the partial compliances are possible. There's an ANSI hierarchy of, of how things are fit in uh, and in, in good humor. Each of those parts where uh, a partial allowance is allowed typically would say that you have to have an egress exactly as you, you, know, you said, but it wouldn't say partial compliance to ANSI. It would be partial in the list of rooms. And that's a very easily written thing. Uh, there's been discussion of planning and zoning and with the department literally since our first meeting in April that that would be a, a, a follow-up item. And again, I would commit everyone who's worked so hard on this to having a draft of that that agrees with both these gentlemen said and have that available as a second motion that if you followed it up within a month or two or three, we will uh, work our tails off to have it in your hands before you even meet on this again. Thank you, Mr. Rambo. So, Rob, are you going to propose a motion? I was going to propose a motion, but I have a question, I guess, for John Ely regarding what was just said, which is, it sounds like you had suggested bringing that back here for second reading as opposed to bringing that as a additional it ordinance, would be a separate, a separate, separate ordinance. Totally separate piece. So pass this and then yes. go through the process of a whole new ordinance that would amend <coughs> this or change this further. That's the way I would recommend exactly. it, just because I think it, it, it would have to go back to P&Z anyway at that point and those sorts of things. So I will make a, uh, a motion to uh, approve the ordinance of first reading, um, ordinance of the Board of County Commissioners, Pickham County, Colorado, amending Title Eight of the Pickham County Code, specifically the 2006 land use, uh, the 2006 land use code for land use code text amendments related to accessibility. Um, set for second hearing December 19th. December 19th. And public hearing uh, December 19th. Is there a second? Second. Any further discussion? Jack? So we've kind of batted this around and it's not going to happen at second reading. I think Rob does bring a good point about uh, P and Z. But is the board willing to commit ASAP following through with this? I'd like to have feel that comfort level that we are, we would look at this. No one's saying that this is going to get done, but it would be brought forward for consideration. Yeah, I, I think that has been the gist of our conversation. And, and ASAP. That's been the gist of our conversation. Uh, and Mr. Rambo is committed to it. Uh, we'll, we will commit our staff to it. And uh, I think that's, that was the direction of the board. I did not hear any dissent from that position. Do I hear any now? I don't hear any now. Well, I, I don't have a dissent, but I, I remember we, we did something else. We wanted staff to do ASAP, and I forgot what that was. And so I just want to make sure ASAP, but based on you know staff's current workload and and, and the normal process. But but ASAP means reasonable. I mean, in the Planning and Zoning Commission is booked through January. I mean that has to be understood. So this probably is you know going to come back in February, March. Yeah. The second phase, the second shoot. Yes, I was confused if. Uh, if there was a question or not as to whether or not you, the board wanted to do this on second reading, or if the board no, wanted the, to do the, the board reading. wants to. I think the majority of the board wants to commit to uh, the ordinance as written, and then because of the complexity of the issue, 
I think the majority of the board wants to re-examine what partial compliance uh, based on the outlines of this ordinance, what the effect that would be. And that would take a longer time and longer consideration from the PNC staff and Mr. Rambo and, and his colleagues. So that that's what, where we stand now. So there's been a motion and a second. Any further discussion? Jack? Yeah, I actually think we've unduly complicated this piece of it because we could bring it forward. The work's been done. So last comment, I'm ready to vote. Okay. All in favor? Aye. 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 Reluctantly because of only this piece. So you're reluctantly in and favor? say yeah. yes. Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. A lot of hard work. Appreciate it. Good work. I wasn't even aware of what it was Sure. Uh, we're going to take a short break, uh, no more than 10 minutes. Is here to talk about eliminating this dog, not eliminating the dogs, but eliminating the prohibitions. <laughs> Let's see, something, I guess it lays somewhere there. Huh? I think there was something else. Oh, yeah, I said it was my hand jump. Does this, does this laser something? Jack, do you have your laser with you? Sorry. I just suddenly went. That one. <laughs> Actually, I gave it to staff last meeting. We had it. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing. What is today? Oh, it was yesterday. Was it yesterday? All right. All right. I can point now. Um, so, so the the property we're talking about is um, lot one of the Davis Donnelly lot split, which is located out on Snowmass Creek Road. So I'll get you oriented. So here's Snowmass Creek Road, um, Watson Divide, and then here's where you cut into Wildcat off of Snowmass Creek Road. So the, Don the Davis Donnelly lot split is lot one here, and this is lot two. Um, the lot split dates back to the early 1990s um, when we had a lot split provision in the code. Um, lot one has remained undeveloped since that time, so um, nothing, nothing has happened out there. Wild, um, wildlife habitat was one of the primary issues, I think, that was discussed at the time from going back through the approvals. Um, there were building and human activity envelopes established on the plat, and as part of that approval, the applicant agreed to limit the size of structures on the lots to 7,500 <coughs> feet and to record a conservation easement to protect wildlife. 
That was originally granted to Aspen Center for Environmental Studies, and then they then transferred the um, conservation easement to Aspen Valley Land Trust. Um, and I think actually what was interesting in going back through the, the files, when that conservation easement was granted, it came about through the review process as a way for them to guarantee preservation of the wildlife habitat on the property, but it seems to be one of the first times that, that was done um, in the county through a land use review process. Um, and uh, I guess there have been recommendations to that effect in the Down Valley Comprehensive Plan, which was late 80s, 87 or 88, I think. But I think this was actually the first time that someone sort of utilized that kind of provision as part of a land use approval. So just a little bit of, a little interesting tidbit on, on history on that. Um, as part of the approvals, the board resolutions um, included con the condition that said no dogs or other predatory animals shall be allowed on the parcel. It appears that that came from the provision in the land use code at the time that applied under the subdivision approval criteria if you were subdividing in this zone district, RS30. Um, and it's basically stated, domestic dogs shall be absolutely excluded from the newly subdivided residential sites. Adequate enforcement mechanisms must be provided for the continued exclusion thereof. Um, dog prohibition was supported at the time by the Division of Wildlife. Um, and ACES as part of, of the review process. And the conservation easement also included a provision um, that prohibited the keeping of dogs or other predatory animals. Um, I guess what's <coughs> changed really since that time is that it's just, it's interesting looking back and seeing that that provision just sort of said across the board, any subdivision in RS30, no dogs. Um, and didn't necessarily then tie it to what's the actual habitat on the property. There was habitat in proximity to this, this, um, the property, and I'll talk more about the current mapping. But the, the, the prohibition at the time you know, definitely seemed to stem initially from that code language that said there you know, just no dogs if you're subdividing. Um, current mapping, and I didn't, um, since we don't have Elmo, I didn't grab those maps to throw up here, but in Jonathan Lowski's wildlife um, report, there are two maps that show the mule deer and elk habitats on the property. You have those in your packet if you want to look. Um, but essentially, the property is within mule deer winter range um, and, um, sorry, let me get it straight, at mule deer and elk winter range. Um, there are other mapped habitats approximately a quarter mile away, which include mule deer winter concentration and severe winter range. Um, and that's on the east side of Snowmass Creek Road, across Snowmass Creek and Snowmass Creek Road, so over here. Um, and essentially we talk about a buffer area from that to the property. The only portion of the property that falls within that quarter mile buffer off of the habitat over here is basically this little, a small triangle down here, right where the road, the driveway intersection with the Snowmass Creek Road. Um, and kind of where these two driveways take off. So just this small corner here. I guess while I'm pointing, maybe I should say, this driveway comes in and the approved envelope is essentially in this location. Um, so then in terms of the additional elk habitat near here, there's elk winter concentration to the west and the east. So there's some habitat on this side and some habitat on this side. In both cases, that quarter mile buffer off of those habitat areas the envelope is not within that buffer area. So essentially the envelope itself is only within the mapped winter range and it's not within the buffers of any of the more critical wildlife habitat areas. That makes it a little more, more simple. 
Um, so the code today only prohibits dogs in certain wildlife habitat areas. Um, and it states if development is approved within winter range, which is the case here, dogs shall be kenneled within 50 feet of the residential buildings or leashed under human supervision when outside a required kennel. Um, so that would be the applicable provision out of today's code. Um, as I mentioned, there's a report from Jonathan Lowski with Colorado Wildlife Science who confirmed the habitat and his assertion was that a kenneling restriction, if strictly adhered to, would not significantly, significantly increase the effects of residential development on the proposed site. Um, Kevin Wright with Colorado Parks and Wildlife has reviewed this um, and met with Mr. Lowski on site said that all, basically although his preference is to forego, this is Jonathan, out of Jonathan's report, um, that he said Mr. Wright's preference is to forego an update to the dog restrictions. He recognizes the current code does not prohibit dogs. Given that, he supports the recommendations made by Mr. Lowski in order to reduce impacts on wildlife, which includes that um, counseling restriction. Um, the applicant has discussed this amendment with Aspen Valley Land Trust since they would not only need to amend the land use approval, they also need to amend the conservation easement. At this point, the AVLT board has stated that they're open to amending um, the easement to reflect their standard current language, um, which I included in that memo, but essentially would, basically their concern is they don't want one wildlife to be harassed. So as long as there is a mechanism to ensure that animals, domestic animals aren't harassing wildlife, um, then that is acceptable to them. So our kenneling restrictions would meet their requirements. Um, and ABLT basically asked the applicant to work with the county first and then come back to them. Um, so I think staff has supported the request given the current provisions of the code. Um, essentially it seems that it's still consistent with the original development approval and that it continues to ensure that wildlife habitat is preserved and impacts on wildlife are mitigated. Um, while a kenneling restriction is different, obviously, than what was originally proposed, the land use code has now changed um, in terms of how we address kenneling or dog prohibitions, and kenneling is allowed within this habitat area under the current code. Um, the applicant would be required to adhere to the kenneling restrictions and other restrictions, and because there is a conservation easement, there's kind of the added benefit that Aspen Valley Land Trust does annual monitoring of the easement and the kenneling restriction would be one piece of what they could be monitoring in terms of seeing if there's any activity outside of the approved kennel um, that would look like dogs are not being, you know, that they're not use, utilizing the kennel. So it provides an additional, I think, guest layer of, of protection for us in terms of um, going to that kenneling restriction. Um, so that's staff's recommendation. I'm happy to answer any questions. Board, are there any questions for staff at this time? Yes, well, I have two specific questions in the, uh, the resolution. The first one is in, the, uh, in section 3C, where it says construction workers will be prohibited from bringing their dogs onto the site. Why are we just calling out construction workers versus a guest bringing dogs onto the site, or a electrician, well, I guess that would be a construction worker, but a um, caterer bringing a dog onto the site. We could certainly broaden that. I guess I just threw in the standard language we've been using, which where the Colorado Parks and Wildlife has seen numerous, I guess, problems has been construction sites um, with, uh, with, with people with dogs, you know, off leash. So I guess that's just been the most common 
um, concern that's come up, but certainly. I mean, it seems to me what we're trying to accomplish is construction workers or anybody are not allowed to bring dogs onto the, onto the place. So I would include that. Um, if, if the board, board agrees. Did you, do you understand Rob's request? He wants no dogs visiting the site? At least no dogs that are unleashed, it seems to me. I mean, could you have a leashed dog visit the site? Because you might have friends bring their dogs over. I mean, right now the condition 3A above that says only one dog shall be permitted on the property, and that was coming out of the, you know, the recommendations from Mr. Lowski. So I think given that, we're looking at, a, you can have a, a, a resident dog, or maybe if you don't have a resident dog, you can have one dog that visits, but, um, but we're not looking at, you get to, all your friends get to bring their dogs okay. and go for a hike on the property. Is that agreeable to the board? Okay, I don't see any. Okay. Um, and my next question is just try to, to try to get some clarification on, on the last paragraph of the resolution, which is paragraph five which reads, failure to comply with the conditions of this approval may result in, irrevocable of, uh, in irrevocation of this approval or any uh, sub, sub, subsequent permits, approvals. I, I guess my question is, what exactly does this mean? How do we monitor this? Um, you know, is it one strike, you're out? Is it, is it you know, where, where's the teeth in this, I guess is the question. I mean, essentially, if, if uh, you know a violation is noticed, I mean, it's identified. We would go through our normal procedure of, you know, whether it be a notice of violation, you know, however we would proceed with that. I guess in terms guess, of to how 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 much it has to. What is the normal procedure? I guess. I mean, I guess, in terms of a dog procedure. restriction, I'm thinking normal procedure. If you, you know, we're building outside of your activity envelope or something, we issue a notice of violation. We might stop work. We, you know, then work with you on how you're going to address the violation. In this case, I mean, it's it's a little more. Either your dogs are using the kennel or they're not. Um, I, I guess I don't I don't know what to. A neighbor complains of a dog. Right. If a neighbor complains, the then we're going to go out and determine if there's a violation or not. If there is dog off leash, not kenneled, um, you know, then then we have to look at what our what our options are under the code in terms of enforcement. Do you, so, you want John Healy to answer that right. question? Yeah, perhaps. In the event of a violation, the board has discretion as to how far to take an enforcement action. And you can do intermediary steps, as Suzanne has kind of outlined, in trying to work with the property owner or trying to uh, address the problems. Or you simply can decide that once is too many. And you will take the actions that are specifically allowed, which is to revoke permits or revoke the underlying it's up to the board to decide how far to take the action in response to the particular circumstances and what you feel is appropriate. So in essence, if there's something that triggers a violation, it would come before the board? Yes. Is that a summary procedure, John? Can we just decide there has been a violation and therefore... No, you have to... There's a procedure within the code that uh, um, outlines how the board goes about to revoke uh, prior uh, approvals, land use approvals. Um, I don't recall an application of that same procedure to 
say building permits, but I would assume that we'd do the same. In other words, it would be very much akin to what's going on right now in front of the board. Uh, the facts of violation would be presented to the board, the circumstances of the violation. You would afford the, uh, the property owner, whoever that might be, a chance to respond, and the board would determine what action to take. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions for Suzanne? Uh, we'll let the applicant, um, do you want to add anything? Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, my name is Jared Davis, and I'm the son of Brad Davis, who is um, sitting in his property. He's not able to be here, being that he's out of the country. And I'm just here if there's any you know, personal questions that you have that I might be able to answer. Um, so that's that's about it. You know, it's, Suzanne obviously you know knows all the regulations, and I've I've gone over and looked over them. Uh, but if you have any questions, you know, hopefully I can answer it. If there's any specific personal questions you would have to ask, yeah, uh, thank Okay, uh, board, do you have any questions? It doesn't look like there's any questions. Uh, is there a motion? For I just want to make comments, not questions. Okay, well, go ahead, Jack, make a comment. You know, on the surface, this might seem innocuous. Well, golly, we're just uh, updating the conditions of a previous approval to a current code, uh, which has changed since those days. And certainly I was part of uh, that rewrite. But when one looks deeper, um, you know, there might be some concerns according to where one is coming from. Well. When in our memo, it was shared with us that the DOW, in particular Kevin Wright, it's not, I mean, his preference would be such that we do not change this prohibition. I went and took the liberty of calling him, spoke to him this morning, and, uh, you know, he, He's in a tough position because he can't write certain things down. For example, he can't even recommend in a written communication uh, that kenneling is acceptable. That kenneling is a possibility due to the politics of parks and wildlife. He simply is restrained from what giving his real total opinion. And I've known that for 20, something years. That's just the way it is. In the 80s and 90s, the state legislature repressed what, what division then the Division of Wildlife officers could said. That's the way it is. But he shared with me and he said I could mention these things. He just did a site visit at 4305. Now I'm assuming maybe that's the other lot of this lot split. I, I don't know. He did a site visit, and there's no, there's not compliance on that site. There's vegetation removal. There is, um, uh, in a couple different conditions, general vegetative uh, removal, and uh, there was some other, something else going on there. So there's a considerable amount of disturbance, and disturbance is important because of habitat. Um, he did say and apparently this is next door, but I don't know which next door to this lot. He did say that uh, there's evidence, definitely evidence of elk there, including 
um, the vegetation being beat down, you know, from them uh, eating the, the vegetation, and elk waste there. Um, and so that leads me to believe that we can look at this intellectually or actually on the ground. Intellectually, the maps tell us one thing, but when were the maps updated? We don't, I don't know, and staff, do you know when the maps that you referred Last to? Last mapping we have from Division of Wildlife, I think it's 2009. Yeah, so, so you know, like mapping that. tells us one thing, but seasonal changes, uh, you know, the conditions in any given time period certainly uh, influence where the animals are at, and so, if next door there's evidence here, and, and um, I have to say, now having a chance to digest this, well, is it within that, the disturbance that he noticed, is it within that quarter mile of the zone of disturbance or not? I don't know. But I'm not comfortable um, approving this because one of our main values in this community relative to the environment is protection of wildlife, wildlife habitat. And though this is on the surface, again, I repeat, maybe practical, consistent with what is the code today, it really doesn't tell us anything about what's happening on the ground. And I'd rather be conservative. Um, This owner might be very good about, you know, kenneling the dog and not allowing it to run. But we know once a dog does run, uh, chases animals, especially the worst time of all is in the fall and the winter when they've gained, you know, the necessary body mass uh, to last through the winter. Um, then they start chasing uh, wildlife during the winter and we have a, a debit in, in the life cycle of the animal. So I think uh, this is a mistake that we would move forward with this because clearly the mapping shows one thing, well then we understand zones of influence or disturbance, but at the end of the day what really is going on on the ground, this won't tell us, this owner might be great, but there's really, there's no enforcement. Uh, you know, we don't have in the county enforcement officers, and I don't think we really want to go to that level. Certainly, Division of Parks and Wildlife has no ability to enforce dog restrictions because they have so much work to do on so many areas, in particular bears, which is typically a human problem. And so, I agree with what Kevin told me today. He'd prefer not to change the approval language. Board, any other comments? I'll make a comment. Um, maybe you've already answered this, Suzanne, but under, um, under, under the recitals on number five, where you say the current Colorado Parks and Wildlife mapping shows the property within, within the mule deer and elk winter range, the approved building and human activity envelopes are greater than one quarter mile away. So that current mapping, what you just uh, mentioned, was based on the 2009 current mapping? Correct. Okay. Um, which may change a little bit, but in general, um, I think it's probably pretty accurate. 
you know, the animals are going to move around depending on how they have, get pushed. Um, you know, and that was, I mean, what's shown on Jonathan's maps is consistent with, I mean, he's using the mapping that the, that the Colorado Parks and Wildlife provides. And I don't think neither his on-the-ground analysis and Kevin didn't provide any comments directly to us. I mean, he did, you know, provide the email in terms of the actual habitat. He didn't, I guess, question the, the mapping in terms of the habitat. I mean, it seems like they both did a field verification of the, of the habitat. Okay. And then as I look at um, number eight under the recitals, uh, BLCC further finds that a kennel restriction, if strictly ad adhered to, would ensure the wildlife habitat is preserved and impacts on the wildlife are mitigated and would not significantly increase the effects. And, and you know, I live at the base of Light Hill, and I've got every animal you can think of back there, from bears to mountain lions, elk to deer in the wintertime. My next door neighbor uh, has a kennel, uh, has two dogs that are kenneled, and it's never been an issue or a problem um, because he's a responsible dog owner. So the impetus is on, on the property owner, and we have, um, there are consequences if, if um, they are abused. Uh, the county does have a animal enforcement officer uh, through the sheriff's department, and uh, I see her out in the back roads all the time, so we, we do have the ability to, to follow up as well. So I'm comfortable with this as, as it is. Thank you, George. Any other comments? Uh, is this a public hearing? It is not. It is not a public hearing. Is there a motion? I'll make a motion. Um, I'll make a motion approving the Davis Amendment to the Board of County Commissioners Resolution Numbers 90-25 and 91-93 regarding dog restriction. Second? I will second that. Make a comment too, if I may. Sure. I think the thing that was read, I think by George, on, on uh, the radicals in Section 8 where it says, if strictly adhered to is crucial here. And uh, seeing that this is if there is a violation, it's, as, as John Ailey says, it's going to come back to us. i got to be honest, I'm not going to have a lot of leeway. The, the rules are pretty clear. Kennel your dog. Don't let it affect wildlife. Because if it's not strictly adhered to, it does affect our wildlife. Thank you. Uh, any other comments? Uh, I'll call the question. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Thank you very much. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you. Uh, there's open discussion. Does the board have any discussion? I have one thing. Yes. Um, I noticed uh, this is uh, regarding probably open space and trails comment. Um, I noticed that on the uh, end of town site, um, the mercantile brick building, uh, where last year there was a sheet of plywood to protect that, that building because of the uh, snow plows uh, in the wintertime. Um, this year they put up what looks like just a tarp. And um, I, I understand that we probably don't want to use plywood up there for numerous reasons. One, it might encourage tagging. 
uh, but we need to protect that building from uh, the impact of snow plows from CDOT. Uh, but I wonder if there's a better solution than just what looks like just a, a brown tarp and uh, perhaps maybe a plexiglass uh, that could be more of a permanent solution that doesn't have to come on and off, but, but would protect the, the facade of that building uh, without uh, inhibiting the, the ability to actually see the building with, with the doors. So that's a comment. I wonder if staff can follow up on that. Thank you, George. Any other open discussion items? Yes, I do Phyllis? have just um, one alert for you for future agendas. You had a December 20th Thursday special meeting scheduled um, for certification of mill levies. The finance department believes they can get them done for that Wednesday, so there won't be the need for the special meeting. But first, again, on Friday, we moved it to Thursday. Um, it looks like now we won't need that Thursday. So we'll do all our business on Wednesday then? All of it on Wednesday. Great. Sorry, what was the date of that? December, it's changing from 19th. December 20th to the 19th. Thank you. To Wednesday the 19th. So is there a motion to adjourn? So moved. Second. Second. All in favor? Huh? All right, thank you very much. I am stunned. <laughs>